Welcome to a Tuesday edition of Locked On NBA. On today's show, the Warriors are up two games to none over the Cavaliers in the NBA Finals. We'll break down what happened so far and what to expect in Game 3. We'll talk about the latest news from around the NBA, including the latest in the strange Brian Colangelo saga and a possible new twist to help limit bad officiating. It's Locked On NBA. Thank you so much for listening and for subscribing. Now let's get to the show. Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. My name is Wes Goldberg. I'm a credentialed writer covering the NBA for The Step Back. You can find me on Twitter at WC Goldberg. And I'm David Wimill, credentialed NBA writer who's covered the league at large for SB Nation and Fansided. You can follow me and my writing on Twitter at DRamil13. We'll get into the latest updates of the 76ers burner account saga and then preview how the Cavs can find a way to bounce back in Game 3 when they're back home in Cleveland. But let's start with a game of true or false, David. Uh, So far in the NBA Finals, um, true or false, after Steph Curry was the leading scorer of Game 2, racking up 33 points, hitting an NBA Finals record, 9 three-pointers on Sunday night, Steph Curry is your MVP of the Finals so far. False. Now, I don't uh, ever ascribe to the feeling that uh, MVP has to be selected from a winning team. I know it's only been once in NBA history, Jerry West, having been the, the person who won the MVP award, even though the Lakers lost, I think, in the 70s. But either way, the point being that I, I don't think that uh, Steph Curry has been the most valuable player. I think, without a doubt, LeBron James. Yeah, well, you can certainly make a strong case for either him, J.R. Smith, maybe a couple others. Um, but I, I really want to say LeBron James has been the most valuable player. His performances have been, I mean, just otherworldly. Uh, he's been so amazing, doing so many little things. Uh, he's he single-handedly led his Cleveland Cavaliers to this point in the playoffs anyway. And that, that strong performance that we saw against other opponents in the Eastern Conference is carried through against the best team in the league in Golden State. And he's just been, uh, you know, superb uh, as far as his overall impact on the game, and it's been far greater than what Steph Curry. Now, Steph Curry changes what Golden State can be as far as raising their ceiling considerably. I think even you can make an argument that Kevin Durant is Golden State's best player, but Steph has probably been their most impactful player, and yeah. I still think that LeBron exceeds him uh, completely. Of anybody on the Warriors, I'd give the award to Steph Curry right now. Kevin Durant got it last year because he had that of his tremendous two-way play, right? I mean, he was guarding LeBron. He was scoring like crazy on the offense. Like Durant has not had nearly as uh, impactful. as He's been fine, uh, but not nearly as impactful of a series as he did last year, especially on the defensive end, where he's had a few lapses, I thought. Um, yeah. And Curry's just, again, I mean, nine three-pointers in Game 2. If, if, if he wins Finals MVP, we're probably looking at that moment as... as or Game 2 as the game where he kind of sealed it, right? And I'm sure he's going to have... He's... he's I'm sure going to make plenty of more three pointers in this series, but that that record nine three pointers to put away the Cavaliers in that game um, stands out. But I'm I'm generally with you. I mean, if as far as who the most valuable player in the finals has been, it has been LeBron. It's not even close. It like it goes without saying that the Cleveland Cavaliers would not be in the finals if it weren't for LeBron. But yes. I mean, how much would they lose by if LeBron were just like to be like? Oh. Remember, when I had this thought in Game One when when Draymond Green put his hand into LeBron James's eye socket, <laughs> and LeBron was on the floor. I was like, if LeBron misses the rest of the finals, like hypothetically, he can't because he's an android, not made of 
you know, made of metal and robots. But um, if you were to miss the finals, how much would the Cavaliers lose by? I mean, 100 points? Like an, an average of 50 points per game is a pretty good chance. And, you know, you have to give credit to the Cavaliers as professional athletes. They have their pride. And, of course, they're all very skilled. But who could possibly take up the load that he's taken up for Cavalier, for, the, for Cleveland? Like, I mean, he does so much from a passing, rebounding, and scoring perspective. You'd need three different players to do what he does. It's unbelievable. I've, I've never seen anybody play the way he's playing right now. It is unbelievable. And... This is, I mean, this is an old Bill Simmons take. He thinks that there should be, uh, I think in his book he wrote about there should be a playoff MVP. Mm-hmm. And if there were, LeBron James would have it. It would not even be close whether or not the Cavaliers win the series or not. It wouldn't, even if they got swept, he would be your NBA playoffs MVP. And there is an argument that he should be that. Um, but if if the Cavaliers get swept in this series, um, I just, I think it's going to go to Curry. I, and I do think that that game two is pretty much what sealed it for him. He's going to win. And there, there was, there's narrative going into this into this NBA Finals about how Steph has never won a, a Finals MVP. And, you know, it's the one thing on his, that he's missing on his resume right now. Um, and that I think all of that combined with the Game 2 performance that he had and the fact that the Golden State is probably going to win this series pretty easily. I think he's going to... After Game 2, I think he's pretty much clinched being your Finals MVP. Though I'm with you. I think it should be LeBron, but I think it will be Curry. Um, speaking of LeBron, true or false, LeBron James is frustrated with his teammates. We saw the video after the game one loss. There's been more stuff, um, more videos tweeted out since then that we've seen about just his general frustration, especially after JR, the whole J.R. Smithgate thing at the end of game one. True or false, LeBron is frustrated with his teammates. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that's carried over all season long. There's been a, a general malaise that has impacted this Cavaliers tr- team from uh, basically from the onset. Um, there was high hopes, high expectations, but the pieces just didn't work. Obviously, there was a lot of frustration mounting throughout the course of the early part, the first half of the regular season. The trade deadline, you know, and the trade that, 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 that Cleveland underwent helped alleviate some of that, but I don't know that it's necessarily fixed anything. If anything, it just cemented the fact that LeBron had to carry a bigger personal load, one he was willing to carry, but it's still taxing. And you can see when he's out there, he's frustrated, he's tired. Uh, Look, you don't want to spend too much time reading into body language, but it's just so obvious. And look, you and I both saw it up close in 2014 when there was clearly levels of frustration there in Miami. uh, And knowing that he had to carry a bigger load as Dwayne Wade went through his uh, rehab maintenance program, as Chris Bosh had a a reduced tertiary role, as role players like Mario Chalmers and Norris Cole and even Ray Allen couldn't carry the load anymore. And it just it, it just weighed on him. And I think you're starting to see a lot of those same kinds of, uh, you know, a lot of that same kind of reaction from LeBron in the finals. He realizes what's at stake here. He's trying to do his best. He knows he's going to ultimately fall short. And I, I feel like it's, it's absolutely frustrating for him, knowing that, knowing that there's no realistic chance of winning, which is all that really matters to him. Great job getting that Mario Chalmers reference in. We usually save that for Locked On Heat, but you got it in here on Locked On NBA. I appreciate that. Always. Um, <laughs> always the GOAT. The real GOAT. We don't need to talk about LeBron anymore. Just kidding. Um, look, LeBron, I, I, I agree with you in the sense that he's frustrated. I don't know that he's frustrated with his teammates, to be honest. I think, I think he's frustrated that these are his teammates. I don't know that he's frustrated with them personally. He is frustrated no. with JR, clearly, at the end of game one. He was frustrated. There are instances, but... I think he's more frustrated to like what you were saying, just that these are his teammates. I don't think I, I feel like if he were to be frustrated, there would be in a level of expectation that they could do more than this. And LeBron's smart enough; he gets that this is kind of like Jeff Green is just playing is playing as good as he can. 
J.R. Smith is playing as good as he can. Well, like these guys are just. I don't know about that I mean, either. I, I based he on could the play evidence, better. I don't he know. He could have more. He of used an to be able to play better. I don't know. Right. I mean, okay, I guess I think he was frustrated with J.R. Smith at the end of game one because he knows he should be playing better, um, and that he shouldn't be making dumb mistakes like he did. But generally speaking, I think like Kevin Love, he misses a few shots, but he's playing as well as you can. I just I think he's doing as well as he can defending Steph Curry. I think he's just like these are his teammates. I think he's more frustrated with the Cavaliers as a franchise, as an organization, maybe with upper management more than he's just frustrated with his teammates. Either way, he's frustrated. Um, final true or false here: the officiating has been as big as a problem as people are making it out to be. True or false? I gotta go with false on this one. To be honest with you, as much as the impact of that that if you want to look at it as a blown call at the end of game one might have had on, on that game and potentially on the rest of the series. You're talking about the blocking charge. Yes. The one that okay. was overturned or the, uh, the, 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 sorry, the charge that was overturned and, and called a block instead. Right. To be honest with you, I, I, I think it was the right call to overturn it. Maybe the, the way the process might've been a little suspicious for, for people who are looking for those kinds of things. But I think generally there probably were five or six calls during the course of the game that were made that could have swayed the, the game as, just as likely. Um, the fact that it came in those waning moments of a game one where George Hill missed a free throw, where JR, you know, virtually turned the ball over. I think that's what magnifies the impact of the officiating as, as something that might be critical or something that may have failed LeBron and the Cavaliers at that precise moment. But overall, I think it's been as good as it can possibly be. Look, they're going to miss calls. I mean, there's there's no way unless until robots start taking over the refereeing position, until we have 80 cameras lining center court or whatever. I don't I don't think that you're going to be able to have a hundred percent fail proof system. So to be honest with you, I think this is as good as it gets, and I don't see it as being that much of a problem. I've never tried to blame officiating when I can avoid it. I think there are specifically. There have been blown calls, not just in this series, maybe, but in others as well. And there's nothing you can do about it. You just kind of have to agree and to, to just accept it and move on. And, I, you know, the officiating, that blown call, if you want to see it that way from game one, didn't change the fact that Cleveland got blown out by 20 points in game two. Or that they got blown out by 10 points in the overtime of game one. Or that George Hill well, missed that free throw. Or that J.R. Smith. That's you know, there's, That's fine. There, there's a lot of things that go into it. And I thought, I'm with you. I thought there were a lot of calls in game one that could have gone either way. There were some touch f- fouls in game two that I thought shouldn't have been called. Kind of going towards Golden State's direction. And uh, I saw a lot of people on Twitter, for example, saying that, you know, Golden State's going to get all the calls when they're in Oakland. And that maybe that would change when the series goes back to Cleveland. But... Uh, the Cavaliers got called for 15 fouls mm-hmm. in Game Two, and, and the Warriors got called for 25. So I didn't. If anybody got screwed by the officiating, I think it was the Warriors, and they ended up winning the game easily. So um, yeah, I, I don't think it's been as big as a deal as people have been making it. I don't. I, I don't think it has determined the outcome of any one game so far. It's been ugly. I don't think the officiating has been good, um, especially at the end of uh, overtime of Game One, like just the mess that that was with the. With the Tristan Thompson skirmish and and with Draymond Green and everything going, on. I don't think the officiating has been clean or good or well organized. But I don't think it's impacted the outcome of any one game. Um, I just, just think we ugly. should stop even considering it. To be honest with you, like you know, it's going to balance out in the end. Maybe a call goes in one team's favor or any other, but I think for the most part, it's been pretty solid. Uh, and, and I think you know, again, look, if you want to look at that one play as an, an indictment of officiating. I think the fact that one they got the right call in the end, whether they got it through a very you know ass backwards sort of method or not, it worked. 
And, and then you look at it, what happened with Kevin Love, where he, you know, they follow the letter of the law. He stepped under the court during that skirmish with Tristan Thompson and Draymond Green, and the league rightfully decided not to suspend him because it was a stupid decision to make. You know, so I think I think each call like that can be looked at on that basis and say, you know what, they're ultimately making more right decisions than wrong ones, and so I think you just kind of have to accept it. And I mean, look, I don't think it's going to change the series. You know, I, I predicted a, a sweep last week. I think we're heading in that general direction. And to be honest with you, I don't think, like you said, that officiating has changed the outcome in any way. Well, other than the NBA Finals, the only other thing getting headlines uh, right now in the NBA is the situation happening with Brian Colangelo. We're going to talk about the latest uh, going on with that story next. But first, a quick reminder to make sure you are subscribed to Locked on NBA to get the podcast every day. Think of it as your bite-sized briefing for the most important stories around the league and keep it here for daily updates on everything going on in the NBA Finals and this offseason. So subscribe to Locked on NBA on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. The Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. With the Warriors leading the series, we'll talk about how Cleveland can bounce back at home. But first, some of the hot topics around the NBA. Uh, this coming in this uh, this Monday morning that the NBA has hired the law firm of Paul Weiss to investigate this this strange saga of general manager Brian Colangelo and his link to several burner Twitter accounts. According to the report, David, the Sixers are pushing for a decision on Colangelo's future by the end of this week. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that they've probably been mulling for some time now. Uh, you know, obviously they needed to make a decision um, and, and they want some kind of official proof that Colangelo or somebody that he's associated with uh, is probably responsible for those tweets where they revealed uh, in-house information to reporters or challenged the players on, on, on you know that were currently on the Philadelphia roster. Um, and to be honest with you, I think it's setting up the 76ers to be able to have enough information to back up a decision for them to terminate Colangelo. Like, you know, the fact that Colangelo is even linked to these kinds of burner accounts in the first place or that anyone of his family or anybody that he's associated with might be linked to these tweets is, is certainly an indictment. And I think that they're just looking to clean up this mess as quickly as possible because it does impact them in free agency. If they're looking at targeting a Kawhi Leonard or a Paul George or a LeBron James in free agency, you need to have your front office in place well in advance of, of that free agency period. So why not make the move sooner rather than later? And if that means, you know, letting go of Colangelo, then that's what you have to do. And, and this is the first step in doing so. Sooner is better than later. I mean, they also have the 10th pick in the NBA draft. They've got to decide what direction they want to go in with that. That's a big pick for them, whether or not who, if they pick somebody there or trade that. Um, they, this is a huge offseason for the 76ers. I mean, pivotal. Really, it is. Because they're not going to have the cap space and the, and the flexibility that they have this summer that they're not going to have that in the, in the following summers when they have to start when extensions start kicking in and things like that. This is Philadelphia's time to really make a move to get up to you know where Boston is going to be next year and where it, Cleveland, if LeBron James stays, is going to be and and to get up to where Toronto is. Like this is the next. This is a this is a huge summer for Philadelphia. So to make it a decision by the end of the week is going to be uh, immensely important. And and it does seem like Brian Colangelo. It's, it's more of a when, not if type of situation for him about when he's going to be let go. And they've got to, not only do they have to make a decision here by the end of the week, or at least according to the support, they're hoping to do so, but then they've got to make a decision on where they're going to go after that. Who's going to be the GM after that? We've heard rumors that maybe David Griffin could go to Philly. Maybe that might be a good option for them, but they've got to make, then they're going to have to go through an interview process and figure out that whole situation. And depending on how long this situation takes, um, that can be a prolonged um, process. 
Yeah. Uh, and and they like like you said, they've got to have somebody in play sooner rather than later because they've got a lot of decisions that they have to make. Um, our next story here is that uh, according to Justin Termine, um, a radio host report tweeted out earlier today that he spoke to NBA executive Kiki uh, Kiki Vandeweghe, and that Vandeweghe said that the league might be experimenting with basically a challenge flag during summer league play this summer. Um, it won't exactly be a challenge flag. Of course, that's referencing what the NFL has when the coaches throw that little red flag and that signals that they're upset with a call and that they want to challenge it. So they're going to have a challenge option in Summer League, possibly. Do you think this is a good or a bad idea? I think it's a great idea, to be honest with you. Look, they, the league actually tried this or included it in the G League earlier this year. Um, it was a pretty simplistic rule where you could make one challenge per game. You could use it at any point during regulation or overtime. And they limited what kind of calls you could challenge. It was a, either a foul call, a goaltending, or a basket interference, or an out-of-bounds call. So those are the limitations placed on this. And I think it helps. I th- as long as it doesn't delay the game too much, um, I think, you know, the thing is you've already you can already challenge certain calls or overturn certain calls in the last two minutes of a period. So I, I to me, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to be able to have one more wild card up your sleeve so that you can say, you know what, this, the game might hinge on this moment specifically. Why not see if I can have it go in my in my favor? Um, you know, it could change momentum. It could drive back in your favor. It could help further build momentum. And, you know, as long again, as it doesn't take too long and slow the tempo of the game. It seems to me like it's a great decision, and I'm kind of curious to see how it could be implemented at the NBA level. The key there with what you said was that as long as it doesn't slow down the game or, or kill the flow of the game, and I think that's exactly what it's going to do. I hate this idea. I think it's Ooh. a bad idea. I just, look, they we already send these plays to Sakakis in the last few minutes of the half. I'm, I, I think the best thing that the NBA has done in recent years has been to shorten the games from like two and a half hours to two minutes or two hours and 15 minutes now. So they've they've cut down the runtime of games. I think that's been huge for the for the league as far as getting people to watch full games as opposed to just fourth quarters, which was you know kind of the the stigma about NBA games in the past. Adam Silver has talked about that. He's made this a priority. They've done so much to help officiating between the last two minute report between the um, the replay center in New Jersey between doing all of these things, and I I just think that adding a challenge flag now adds a whole... Because if you add that, it adds a whole layer of questions. How long do the refs get to review these plays? What Who reviews these plays? Are they the refs on, are, is it the refs on the court? Or do you send this to Sakakis again? How many challenges does a, t- uh, a coach get per game? When can you call the challenge? What what fouls can you call the challenge at? It adds this whole layer of questions, and I just think you we're trying to fix a problem by introducing more issues more by potentially more problems and i just i don't think that that's the way it goes every other sports league that has challenges don't seem to be completely happy with the way it goes um you know it just i i don't want anything to do with it look if it's a bad call or a good call at the end of the day i'd rather just have the call and then move on i actually i would rather have less of this than more of this i don't like the idea at all Huh. I'm surprised at that because, I mean, from what I remember, from what I've thought about you, I think you would rather have the right call made at the t- at that time, mm-hmm. even if it takes an extra minute. And again, look, I think if these limitations that they follow in the G League are implemented at the NBA level as well, 
I think it'll be a pretty clean and precise and easy to incorporate, you know, addition to the way that games are officiated. You know, as long as you're limited to just one, the best coaches in the league will know exactly when to use it. They're not going to use it within the first minute of the game because, again, over the next 47 minutes, who knows whether or not you'll need it. You know, the, the best coaches, I think, like Brad Stevens, a, a Greg Popovich, a, an Eric Spolstra, et cetera, those are the guys that will know when to use it most effectively. And I think that's going to be an interesting development, to be honest with you. I, I I like I think getting the call right is important, but adding another five minutes to my time watching an NBA game is not. And I I prioritize just I want more I want more ways to shorten the game. I would rather I would rather the game run two hours instead of two hours and fifteen minutes. I would rather more ways to shorten the game than more ways to prolong the game. I just I want to keep the flow. To me, the flow is what's important. All right. Um, All right, we'll wrap up the show by previewing Game 3 of the NBA Finals next, but don't forget that in addition to the daily Locked On NBA show, the the Locked On Podcast Network also has a daily show for your favorite NBA team. So go ahead and subscribe to your team's channel on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. By subscribing to both Locked On NBA and your favorite team's show, you'll be covered with everything you need to know. The Locked On Podcast Network, your team, every day. Game 3 is set for Wednesday night, and the series shifts back to Cleveland, where the Cavaliers have been an impressive 6-1 and one during the playoffs this year. We've seen two different types of wins from Golden State, and we've seen the best of what LeBron James can offer. Is there another level for him to reach now that he's back in Cleveland that could leave the Cav- lead the Cavs to a Game 3 win? I'm curious what you have to say about it. I'll defer to you on this one. Ooh. No, I mean, we've seen... I mean, look, it's going to take historic performances like we saw in Game 1 for the Cavaliers to even be in the game. <laughs> I mean, they were not... LeBron had a, an almost triple-double in Game 2, had a great game, but it was not historic. Great, but not historic, and they got blown out. Now, credit the Warriors for that, with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson hitting a bunch of threes. Kevin Durant had a fine game. But um, Durant has been subpar, I think. He's only going to bounce back at some point. And I just... Again, I think LeBron can have another Game 1 51-point performance, and I just don't see the how Cleveland wins a game here unless the role players around him. This is less about LeBron to me, but it's more about the guys that are surrounded by LeBron. They've got to hit threes. They've got to play better defense. They've got to communicate better on defense and rotate better. I think that is going to be the main thing going back home because um, the Cavaliers have talked about this. And then in the Western Conference Finals, the Houston Rockets uh, talked about this in practice when I was covering them about the, fa- the idea that it's really hard to communicate when you're playing in Oracle just because of how loud it is defensively. You know, how to communicate switches and, and help defense and things like that. I think that's going to help Cleveland going back home where they are more experienced, and obviously the record proves that. Um, that, to me, is going to be what needs to improve and, and probably will improve. I just don't know if it's going to be enough for them to, to get a win. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I don't know that there is another level. But I will say, and you and I have both watched LeBron enough over the years, that we've seen two different versions of LeBron on the court. And that's the aggressive attacking LeBron or the one that kind of defers a little bit and tries to get his teammates engaged early on. I don't know that he can get those role players engaged any more than he has. He, he's, already, he's already notched 21 assists in the first two games of the series. So I don't know if it's necessarily finding teammates or, or helping them get better looks or anything like that because he's already done that. So it, it's kind of tricky waters for him to navigate. But at the same time, I, I think he has to be able to 
do more of those little things, maybe play a little bit better defensively, maybe inspire his teammates rather than just have those overbearing expectations that they'll meet his level of production, which they have not been able to do. So this might be a time for him to kind of evolve a little bit and play a different, more different level of basketball rather than just the dominant presence that he's been over the first few games and for most of the playoffs. It doesn't seem likely that he's going to become that, but it might be that that version of LeBron that needs to be there in order for them to have any chance of victory. And even that might not be enough. As you pointed out, um, you know, the, the role players just haven't stepped up. And and honestly, Golden State has just been too good. And they're gonna get some some strength back in their rotation with a key player when he comes back into the lineup. So that's true. And I mean, look, it comes down to what they do defensively. I think, you know, a lot of people are paying attention to the shot making of the guys around him on offense, right? But I, I, it doesn't matter. LeBron's not going to be able to score 122 points by himself. And, you know, the Warriors, if they're scoring that much, there's just no way that Cleveland is, is going to be able to win. They've got to pick it up defensively. And it comes down to LeBron. It comes down to, to everybody on that team. And, and, and just, you know, not being as leaky as they were, especially, I thought, in the first half of Game 2. You mentioned the Warriors might have a key player coming back, which could really seal it for the Warriors. If Andre Iguodala does return, and he is, accor- uh, uh, according to reports, pain-free now, Looking to return in Game 3, how much of a factor do you think that'll play? That's huge. Uh, To be honest with you, we talked about this before the series started, but I think he's such a key component. Everybody kind of tends to overlook what Andre can do. But he's just been, you know, such a, a key linchpin there. He's a, a voice of maturity and experience. He does provide another great defensive presence there, somebody who can make things more difficult for LeBron. Not that you're really ever going to stop James, but at the same time, you do want to try and limit him and have another body to throw at him. And he kind of helps Steve Kerr get his rotation more aligned with, uh, I think, what they did over the regular season. Um, you know, it, it brings back that Hamptons 5 lineup that you like so much and it has been so potentially lethal. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, I think it's a great thing for Golden State and, and not that they really need it. I mean, I think he probably could have come back in game two from what we've heard. But at the same time, he chose not to. Uh, it didn't really matter. Now, if you go in there with two wins, as they as they did, and now you all of a sudden can ease him back into the flow of the game, he's not going to disrupt anything. He's experienced enough uh, and a veteran presence, so I don't think he's going to change anything in a negative way. And again, he just provides an additional mature veteran presence there for, for Steve Kerr. And, you know, as far as a schematic standpoint, gives you know we, we saw Cleveland, they, they were... Um, you know, showing a lot on the pick and roll against against Steph Curry and their their whole strategy of the last three or four finals has been, you know, to try anytime that the, the the Warriors run a high pick and roll with Curry to just blitz them and try to get the ball out of his hands. And Iguodala gives him an outlet who can handle the ball a little bit from up high, you know, and, and do something with it, get it to a KD or a Clay Thompson just, a, you know, on a short roll or something like that. And then on the on defense, he is a guy who could pick up LeBron, meaning that Kevin Durant doesn't necessarily have to do it. And if that's the case, now Durant could slide over to uh, defending a Kevin Love or a Tristan Thompson or somebody who isn't obviously a handful as LeBron James is. And then that might get LeBron, uh, KD back into the series because he's had a subpar shooting series so far because he's had to be the number one guy on, on LeBron for most of the first two games. So putting Iguodala on LeBron... Well, could allow Kevin Durant to play a little bit better offensively, which would just, I mean, between Curry and Clay, who seems to be healthy with his leg issue, and if KD gets going, I mean, this this series is as good as done, if it's not already. Um, but this podcast is as good as done. 
if not already. So that's all we have for today. You can subscribe to Locked on NBA on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. We'll be back next Tuesday. You can find us on Locked on Heat in the meantime. John Krause and Jake Madison got you on Locked on NBA tomorrow. Thank you for listening, and thanks for joining me, David. You got it, Wes.